on today's show. Lots of talk about inflation, fiscal updates, the Bank of Canada. What's it all mean? You ever go into a negotiation for a new job and they say, how much do you expect to earn? You don't know what to say. You want the most, obviously, but you don't know how to get it. We'll give you some advice. And Omicron. We've heard all about it. We're starting to see some reactions by different governments. How much do we know? So yesterday we got our update from the central bank and the federal government as they sort of outlined their new five-year mandate, which is essentially the same as the old five-year mandate with some slight revisions, which are kind of important. So let's discuss what we expect in terms of inflation, inflation, inflation. That seems to be the focus not only in our country, but around the world right now. So we're going to chat with Trevor Toom. Trevor, of course, is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so this discussion that we saw yesterday, the central bank reaffirming that, yes, okay, we're in the game of monitoring and trying to, you know, moderate inflation and keep it in that sweet spot. But they also talked about the employment situation in our in our country. So basically what their central banks typically are trying to do is keep inflation in a sweet spot, right? At about mm-hmm. Is it about 2% typically? Yeah, so it's a range of between 1% to 3%, and they, they emphasize 2 as that midpoint that they're aiming at. Okay, and traditionally, I mean, that's what they do when rates go up and rates go down and things like that. Now, how Mm -hmm. important was it yesterday that they started talking about also being involved in the employment situation in our country? Well, the bank always looks at a wide variety of indicators to get a sense of the underlying strength or weakness in the economy so that they have a sense of whether they need to maybe ease up on their monetary policy to try and stimulate things or to tighten it, to slow things down. So we we look to things like employment, uh, but also other indicators like production and capacity utilization of our factories to, to get a sense of which way uh, monetary policy should go. So my interpretation of, of what we saw yesterday from the bank is is actually just that the government gave them the exact same mandate that they have now had for decades, mm-hmm. that is to target 2%, keep it in that 1% to 3 uh, range. Uh, but then the bank expanded to make it more transparent how they go about formulating their decisions. I didn't actually see it as a change in what they're targeting at all. And, and you make a good point in terms of what they're monitoring and what we're looking at. We hear about, you know, the inflation rate. We hear about the unemployment figures or the employment mm-hmm. insurance figures, whatever it is, maybe. Um, but there's a a lot of other calculations that they have to be monitoring at the same time, right? Oh, no question about it. And and the reason why is because monetary policy can sometimes take a long time to yeah. work its way through. So the bank does something, and the effect of that is seen a year, a year and a half down the road. So they need to look at a lot of indicators uh, so that they can get the, the best sense about where the economy is going. It, it's certainly tough, no question. Um, and that's why they, they look to all of these other indicators. And, and this report, they're, they're trying to clarify that in a more transparent way, because we are going into a time where monetary policy is going to have a more difficult time than it used to, just because interest rates are so low. Well, that's the thing. And I want to, I mean, where does the pandemic and the pandemic spending fit into all of this? Because when with the inflation numbers that we're seeing, you would expect rates to go up, but the, the bank saying, yeah, maybe in April, possibly that yeah. would be the area. So how, how does it work? Yeah, exactly. Normally, if, if you normally see inflationary pressures build and the bank will raise interest rates, this time, you know, like most things through COVID is not normal and is pretty 
different. And, and right now, inflation is being driven largely by energy prices. That 4.7%, for example, would have been 3.3% had you excluded energy. Mm-hmm. And fully half of all products measured by Statistics Canada saw price increases less than 3%, that top range there. So an interest rate increase by Canada's central bank wouldn't do a lot for easing inflation if it's driven by global factors like energy prices. Um, As far as the fiscal update that we're expecting later today, Mm -hmm. uh, now again, they're talking about pandemic spending, and there's a lot of groups saying you need to rein in the spending, saying that's part of the, you know, helping to push up inflation rates that we're seeing. Um, Like you say, energy prices definitely the main factor, but how much, you know, spending does in fact uh, affect inflation, correct? Sure. And keep in mind the type of spending that government engaged in through the pandemic was largely transfers to individuals and businesses. And how this connects to uh, inflation numbers is that it ensured household disposable incomes didn't fall. Indeed, they, they rose during the pandemic. And so that allowed people uh, you and I and families across the country to continue spending, continue buying things. And indeed, people are buying now more goods, uh, spending more than they ever have before. And that leads in part to some of the supply chain congestion that we're seeing, which is in also in part leading to higher prices. So fiscal policy does matter, but it is important to keep in mind that this isn't the government buying stuff. This is the government giving money to families to buy stuff. And so that changes, I think, how we weigh the pros and cons of that. So do you expect to see, I know there's a lot of groups calling for it to be dramatically slashed, and, and it, you know what, it has been reduced from what it was oh, yeah. at the height of the pandemic, but do you, yeah. do you expect it to be uh, constrained even more? And so we are currently looking at spending rates that are significantly below where we were last year. And I think we may very well see uh, an even larger reduction in spending than we anticipated. So I actually wrote a piece up at financesofthenation.ca where we put forward our own projection here. And we think that spending this year is going to be nearly $160 billion lower than last year, which is a sharper decrease in spending than what was originally budgeted for earlier this year. And I think part of that is because the recovery has been relatively strong this year, a lot stronger than I think many people anticipated earlier this year. And so that's going to factor into an improved budget picture. Hey, last one before I let you go. When you're, you know, it's all based on year over year, year over year. Well, when you have a year like we had, I mean, when you're looking at inflation rates, like it's pretty tough to hold that up and say, well, this is what our inflation is compared to last year, but look where it was the year before. I mean, how hard is it to try and calculate some of these things that traditionally you can look at year after year after year with what's happened in the past year or two? Yeah, certainly 2020 is going to present all sorts of statistical challenges yeah. for us for, for years to come, no question. And and for a while early in 2021, part of the higher inflation was just recovering from the big price drops that we saw during the early phases of the contraction. So um, my way of looking at inflation now is to look at where prices are relative to where they would have been if we met our 2% target this whole time. And so we are above that. And so that gives us a a better sense, perhaps, of the underlying inflation pressures than just comparing to the aberrant uh, 2020 year. (laughs) No kidding. Well, we'll wait and see what happens later today. Trevor, thank you so much for giving us a bit of a preview of how all this works, and uh, thanks for your time.
My pleasure. You bet. That's Trevor Toome, who is a associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. So we're getting our fiscal update from Christian Freeland coming up uh, later on this afternoon, finance minister, of course. Um, and we're expecting some pretty good news here, especially when you take a look at the deficit. The government predicted that the deficit for the last fiscal year, the last year, would be $354 billion and $155 billion this year. But, but that could change. You know what happened with Alberta's books due to the surging price in energy? Well, the same thing could happen at the federal government. There could be billions more uh, helped by the higher oil prices. And then there's the double-edged sword because, you know, as we heard from Trevor, the higher energy prices are part, part, not entirely, but part of what is uh, fueling inflation in Canada right now. Speaking of getting things, getting what you deserve, I'm horrible at this. I'm just not good at it. The art of negotiation, the art of selling yourself, the art of making sure that you get the best possible deal when you're in a negotiation. It's not easy to do, especially if you're conflict adverse, as I am. But we're going to get some expert advice here. We're going to chat with Eric Alini, who is a national online journalist and money reporter with Global News. Uh, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, you have a book coming out right away here called Money Like You Mean It, and this is this is covered in the book, right? Yes, it's a big part of the book. Now, is it something that some people just naturally are better at doing negotiating and, and driving a hard bargain? Are there just some people that can't do it, people like me, for example? Yeah, definitely, and uh, there's people who learn, <laughs> and that would be me. <laughs> so, I mean, aside from the fact that some people are just naturally better at doing it, um, is there a way that you can be taught? Is there a way that you can learn to be a better negotiator? I'm sure there is, right? It's just like any other thing. Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot comes down to preparation and knowing sort of going yeah. in, you know, have some parameters for, for what you need to do uh, during those pay negotiations. Yeah. So put together some sort of a plan. I mean, I, I think that's the situation I find myself in a lot is going in and not really having a plan, not having a goal. When you want to start to formulate a plan, uh, what's job one? Where do you begin? So the first thing you need to do is figure out sort of basically what's your market worth. So what's a fair compensation for the credentials, skills, and expertise that you bring to the table, that you're going to bring to this new job? So how do you do that? Yeah. So researching online, you know, that's probably what most people do. That's what I did initially. It's not that useful. A lot of the time for a lot of jobs, you're going to find ranges that are so wide, they're they're not, they're just not useful. Um, and employers, I'm hearing from career counselors, just don't care that much about that. What you really need to do is sort of gather your on the ground intelligence. So speak to colleagues, um, you know, people in your industry, contacts who have or have had a similar job and have a similar <clears throat> background. And so it's awkward to, to, you know, to ask someone out for coffee or, you know, Zoom or whatever and ask them, so how much are you making, right? Like, that's really awkward and a lot of people won't tell you. But um, Alison Venditti, which is, um, who is a, a career 
coach I interviewed for for the book has this great strategy. She calls it uh, playing the over-under game. So you ask people, so, you know, uh, come up with a certain pay and like, is this this fair for the job? Are you making more or are you making less? And people are much more willing to share whether they're making more or less of a certain level than telling you exactly what they're making. And that's really valuable information. It's especially um, valuable, you know, at, it, it basically it uh, ensures that you're not lowballing yourself, that you're not asking less than you should be asking for. Yeah, at least you're in the ballpark. You know you're in the ballpark at that point. Exactly. And if you start low and everyone you, t- you, you speak to uh, says, no, I make quite, quite a lot more, or yeah, <laughs> I make exactly. more than that, then you can adjust, right? <laughs> um, now, the other thing is, when do you start talking about money? Like if you, for me, or I'm sure for a lot of people, if you get a job interview, the first thing you go in is say that you, you, you know, you, you're, you're trying to land the job. So, I mean, I, I've never been one to bring up salary right off the hop. Kind of, Is that something that you need to put up right at the beginning and say, let's talk money here? So you don't want to say, let's talk money, but you can, uh, it's very legitimate and I, it's good practice to ask uh, if they can give you the pay range. Okay. Just to have an idea, just to know what you're in for. And frankly, if the pay range is so low, then you don't bother, especially in a job market like this, especially if you have options, if you're already employed and you want to improve your income and you're not sort of desperate to find anything, yeah. um, that's a good practice. And if the employer says no, you know, if you have options, you might want to walk away from that too because pay transparency is really important. So an employer who won't give you even a vague idea of what you're in for, uh, you might you might not want to work there anyways. Yeah, exactly. You want to at least know what you... Okay, so now we've got the range. We know that, okay, this range is workable. It's something I can do. Now you got to determine your bottom line, right? And shoot high. Like, how do you go in sort of, this is what I'm going to say I want, but this is what I'll take. How do you define those? Yeah, so, you know, once you've done, you've gone through the process, you know, the, the actual pay negotiations do come at the end. And so at that point, you have to know, you know, you have to have a number in mind, you know, it's pretty much what I would like, something around, say, 80000 right? And then you also need to know what's the absolute, you know, minimum that I'm willing to accept. So let's say, you know, anything less than 70000 I'm just, I'm walking away. I can stay in my job. It's not worth it. <laughs> For me, the jump shifts and have to learn a new job for less than, you know, this value. That's your reservation value. And then super important is to have what I call an anchor value. So basically, employers will often start first and they will offer you a number. And that number kind of anchors the conversation. That's because, you know, the first number that comes out, it's it's the one that we're all thinking about. Like we have to move up or from there. So try if if try to go first first of all but if you don't get the chance to go first then make sure your own anchor is quite a bit higher than your target value so absolutely do not say if you want 80,000 don't say 80,000 say i would say at least 90,000 okay and, you know and that way you've anchored the conversation yourself quite a bit higher now you have a pretty big range between what the employer sort of the lowball offer <laughs> And, and what you were, you were asking. And you're also giving yourself um, a lot of room to negotiate and make concessions and still hit the actual, you know, target pay that you want. So now you set your bottom line. This is, what, this is the absolute minimum. You have to have that, and you have to be willing to walk away, right? Like, you have to be able to say, you know what? Sorry, we just can't make a deal here. Yep. Even though you're and- walking away from a job. 
and it depends, right? So the the other thing you you have to keep in mind is, uh, uh, you know, what, what's called uh, in in jargon the 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 BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So you have to know, okay, so can I walk away? What's my situation? If you're employed, then you're in a good bargaining position. Um, if you have another job offer, even better, yeah. even more bargaining power, right? So you have to know, okay, this is the absolute minimum less than this. I'm staying in my job or I'm going with someone else. And even honestly, even if you're unemployed, I mean, if it's a really like bottom of the barrel compensation, especially now, you know, there are a lot of jobs out there. You just might want to hold on and see if you can get something better. Okay. Great advice. Erica, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That is Erica Alini, who is a national online journalist and a money reporter with Global News. She's got a book coming out called Money Like You Mean It. So we're watching and waiting to see what the provincial government might announce later today. Uh, the premier hinting that we might see some changes to restrictions uh, heading into Christmas uh, and also free rapid testing available, take-home kits. But at the same time, if you're watching what's going on with COVID around the country and around the world, you'll see there's a lot of concern because of Omicron or Omicron or however you say it. But Ontario um, canceling some school support uh, sports in Waterloo, um, Omicron really taking off there. And then you take a look at what's going on in the UK. It's really, really shocking how quickly... Uh, this new strain is spreading and uh, doubling and in you know, all the rates that we talk about. But the question is, and I've said this a million times, until we have the information, I don't think we need to freak out. We can't panic yet because we need to know. And we're getting more information and it's getting more confusing to me, at least, because some of it doesn't sound good, but some of it does. So what do we know and what should be waiting on? We'll get some Expert insight here. We're going to chat with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. Um, Doc, thank you for joining us again and sort of walking us through what we know and what we don't know. Appreciate it. Hey, I'm happy just finding out I'm not the only one confused by all the information out there. So that's good. This is the thing, because now, I think the last time we talked was probably two, three weeks ago, and it was sort of, let's wait. Let's wait until we get the information, which was two or three weeks away. So now we're starting to get it, um, but we don't have all of it yet, right? Is that Are we sort of in this flux where we're finding out, but we don't know definitively yet? Yeah, so the issue is, is that as we get information in, it doesn't come all in one package, right? So we get bits and pieces, certainly from, from different areas of the world, and that gives us a lot of insight, but it also doesn't give us you know, a 100% concrete answer for everything about, about Omicron. And that makes it confusing because now we're having to try and be very fluid in our response based on pieces of information, but not necessarily the, you know, the whole book of what Omicron is. So what do we know definitively <laughs> at this point? Yeah, that's a good question, right? So what do we know definitively? And I think you summed up a lot of it. I mean, listen, this is a a variant of concern that is spreading unbelievably rapidly, right? We we haven't seen this before, and I think that is why you're seeing as much caution uh, being leveled right now as there is. Certainly the push for third doses is, you know, really the reasoning is we we are seeing very, very quick spread, and we don't necessarily know what we're dealing with. Certainly uh, reinfections have been higher with with this particular variant. Um, You put 
vaccinated people in front of this with with two doses, we're, we're seeing breakthrough infections. And, and we're trying to figure out why that, that necessarily is. The severity of disease issue is a much bigger chasm right now. So there's data to suggest that there may be milder disease. Certainly the, the South African uh, data suggested that. But there are a litany of caveats that come with that. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of caution being taken with the data and saying, listen, we, we don't know what this looks like. So our best bet is to not see a bunch of infections. Let's try and, and maintain, uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever you know, I, I guess, ease we can in the healthcare system at present. I think that's that makes sense to me because I mean I, I I watched the the video from the doctor in South Africa the one who sort of has been dealing with this since it started down there saying you know what we're not seeing people in hospital in fact our death rate has gone down and if you take a look at what's going on in the UK I think they announced their first death from Omicron yesterday so one death um, and in some places we're seeing where case counts shot up through the roof but hospitalizations remain steady so there are some positive indicators that we keep hearing but. I mean, any massive increase in case counts will ultimately, even if it's a reduced percentage, lead to more hospitalizations, correct? That's exactly it, right? So we, if we look at this from the, the auspice of the virus and we think, okay, if it has enhanced transmissibility, but it's a little bit less virulent, what does that mean for us? Well, it doesn't mean that we're in the clear because now you're seeing a virus that gets out to far more people far faster. So even though there's a little bit less virulence, you can still end up with, with basically an overloading your hospital. So that's where we, we just don't have the data to tell us right now in high-risk populations and certainly in, in people that are unvaccinated, mm-hmm. what are we seeing? Because the majority of the areas where we're seeing really, really strong spread of this variant, uh, there is really good immune protection in the community through either prior infection or vaccination. But we have pockets that are still highly susceptible. So the latest information that I'm seeing this morning, um, this is from WHO. They're coming out and saying, okay, Two doses of Pfizer, you're 33% protected against Omicron. But if you take a third dose, the booster dose, now you're up to 70%. Um, So it's not saying the vaccine is not effective, but it's less effective than Delta, correct? Yes, that's exactly it, right? And again, there there are caveats in that early data, and I think we, we have to appreciate that this is, you know, a, you yes, know, a exactly. very specific population. But what it tells us is that, listen, the, the severe disease protection, there is still some, you know, protection from severe disease, but it is not the same as what we've seen before. So ergo, we need to keep people uh, protected. The third dose is going to be important, but it's also all those other, you know, kind of, you know, you know risk-benefit ratios that we need to go through those risk assessments to try to keep virus at bay on top of vaccination. Um, the people, and I'm sure you've heard this, where some people are saying, well, this is how the Spanish flu ended. We got a very, 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 very infectious strain, but it didn't cause severe illness. It tore through the population. People didn't get sick, and we ended up where we are now. Um, so a lot of people are saying, this is actually really good. This is maybe the way we this ends. Is it too early to make that prediction? Oh, 100%. <laughs> if there's anything that we should have learned about COVID-19 at this point, it is... This virus is unpredictable, and we can't necessarily look back at, at influenza or, or certainly other viruses to infer what's going to happen, um, because we, we have done that before. And I think where we are right now is kind of like, listen, we, we have an option where this is now a vaccine-preventable disease. Let's get people vaccinated, 
and try and, and, and get transmission down to a minimum based on those public health measures and, and not just letting the virus kind of move through populations. Yeah, so I mean, I think we're seeing some countries do that. Do you anticipate that might be the course we take as we continue to learn more? We know that it spreads at an incredible rate, more than anyone that we've seen. And while we wait to see, you know, in terms of severity and illness and death and things like that, try and keep uh, the brakes on as much as we can? I think so. You know, I think that nobody wants to go back to this idea of, of lockdowns, right? right so yeah. We've got vaccines. We know what actions we can do to protect ourselves from transmission. It's going to be about monitoring what's going on locally and certainly what's going on in, in the local healthcare systems. If you start to see that they're getting over-exacerbated, uh, then, then there may be some, some need to put on uh, you know, much harsher restrictions. But we can do a lot just through our own behaviours, and I think that's where we need to be. Okay, last one before I let you go. What's with the pills, the treatment? We keep talking about vaccines, and we keep talking about restrictions and blah, blah, blah. Where are we at in terms of another form of treatment, which, which we knew, uh, or we've been told, is very effective, even against Omicron? Yeah, we're, we're moving closer, right? So the Pfizer and, uh, and Merck drugs, I think, are, are getting closer. Pfizer's taking a little bit of a hit. The, uh, the Merck drug looks pretty good. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on authorization, right? But that also is a benefit for people that are already sick and, right. and infected. So vaccination up front, absolutely. The, the additional antivirals are, are certainly going to help from a supportive care standpoint. Gotcha. Okay, Doc, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, who is an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. He's walked us through this pandemic right from the beginning. And, you know, I think the message from the doc there is we don't know. We still don't know. We're getting early indications. We're getting early results of very, very small tests. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.